We are going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 tonight. And so as those of you that have been with us, you know we've been traveling through the gospel according to Luke. And so what's so great about this and the way we do Bible study at Calvary Chapel is we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I'll tell you that tonight we're in a section that I feel is just so relevant to so many people that I know personally and including myself. And it's just a reminder. I know what's been said before, but it bears repeating. The idea that Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. He is the hope for all of us, all of those people, myself included. You see how I almost didn't include myself in us. I need to remember this myself, that during trials and tribulations and testings, that man, those things that seem sometimes absolutely relentless to attack us, At the end of the day, Jesus is faithful to hear our request of desperation. He's there to see our needs during those times of despair. And he's there to answer all of our doubt as our plans don't line up with maybe what he's doing. That's that song we just sang, Canvas and Clay. The fact that the Lord, he has a plan that we may know nothing about. We have an idea, but we got to continue to seek him and follow him every day. And Jesus, remember, is the hope that we need for every season, wherever we may be. And so in this section, we're again, we're only looking at verses 1 through 23 tonight, not the whole chapter. But we're going to see three things. We're going to see desperation. We're going to see despair. And we're going to see doubt. And I think those are all things that all of us encounter at different times during our walk with Jesus. Or honestly, just during life. And if we put our hope in anything other than Jesus... It's going to be problematic. We're going to run into things that are just absolutely destroying. That's why Jesus told us to build upon the rock, build upon that solid foundation. And so if you're with me, you're going to be at Luke chapter seven, verse one. And so we're going to take a look at what it says here. Very first verse, it says, now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and see, this is important to know. Because Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus's ministry. It was the spot where Jesus resided. If you remember, he was a born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. And in Luke chapter four, we studied it. Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth. And when he went in there, according to Luke chapter four, verses, I believe it's verse 18 and 19, if I'm mistaken. Okay. Um, He goes in and he quotes for sure Isaiah 61, one through two. And that's the section where he starts talking about the fact that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to to come and, and set at liberty the captives and the oppressed, right? To give sight to the blind. And he told them that that messianic passage, that it was fulfilled in their hearing. Jesus said he was the Messiah in that synagogue in Nazareth. But the people... The people in that moment, they said, man, we don't see it. We believe that you might be Joseph, the poor carpenter's son. Even that is alleged, right? Jesus's birth was a wild birth, right? People didn't know what to make of Jesus's birth. Some people considering him, forgive the term, but they considered him a bastard by true formal sense of the word because they couldn't prove who his father was. There were people in Nazareth that said, there's no way you're our Messiah. But you see, Jesus said, no, I am the Messiah. And assuredly, I tell you that no prophet is accepted in his own country, he said in Luke 4, 24. And he went on to tell them, you guys are the Jews, the people that I have come to, 
According to Luke chapter four, he tells them, I came here, you're rejecting me. And let me remind you that the same kind of thing happened in first and second Kings when Elijah and Elisha were out doing miraculous things. The Jewish people were serving a sky God, a false mythological God named Baal, instead of trusting in the Lord. But it didn't mean the Lord stopped working. The Lord ended up blessing people like Elijah and Elisha by revealing his power to them and then healing Gentiles people that were out of the land, people like Naaman the Syrian and the, the widow that was out in the desert with Elijah, the Lord was still moving. So just because some people don't believe doesn't mean that the Lord stops working. It just means simply this, they're gonna miss out on the reality of healing and deliverance from our true enemy, which is sin. You see, it tells us in Romans Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And what's free to us, it costs Jesus his life. He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, for the fact that you and I would be brought into perfect fellowship with God the Father through his sacrifice. But we had to believe in faith that Jesus is Lord, confessed our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. That is the gospel message according to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And so there were Jews there, though, that said, man, we don't believe this. And to be fair, there were Gentiles as well that didn't believe in Jesus. They were unaware of who Jesus was supposed to be. But the Jews, they should have known better, man. They had the scriptures, but they rejected him because they were blinded by their fleshly logic that said Jesus is not what we're expecting. But I love this section because it shows us that the Lord still works great things and he'll work for everyone, whether Jew or Gentile. Look at verse two through five. It's the story of the Roman centurion. It says, and a certain centurion servant who was dead, I'm sorry, dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. That's speaking of the centurion for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And so in these three verses, what we're seeing is that there's this centurion, man, he has great faith, great compassion, and man, he has great humility. Because the first thing I know is that he's a centurion. A centurion was a, a Roman soldier that was put and placed over a hundred men. That's where that word centurion comes from, a century of 100, right? And so he has a servant in the Greek word, it's doulos, which is actually closer to slave. So this man, powerful man, has a slave servant who is very sick. Matthew 8, 6 tells us specifically more about the sickness. It says, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. So he had a man at home that was losing his strength. He was losing his, his feeling in his body. He was paralyzed and he was tormented by it. But here's the crazy thing about this. The centurion, we see his compassion here because he cares about his servant, his slave, his doulas, right? The, uh, the fact that he would say, I'm not just going to replace this man. I mean, in that culture, it was... Uh, not to be gruesome, but it was almost expected that if your slave who was supposed to labor and work for you couldn't perform their task anymore, they were worth nothing. You could kill them in that sense. That's sick. And we don't understand and relate to that, but that's how this Roman culture, it, how it rolled out. But this Roman centurion says, man, I don't want to kill this guy. I love this guy. 
He's dear to me. I want him to be healed, man. That's compassion. Instead of wanting someone to die, you want them to live and you want to do anything you can to help them. And man, just think about this, like for one second, like the idea that, man, they had a relationship, this powerful centurion and this lowly servant formed a, a relationship that was so friendly and close that the centurion says, I'm going to use anything in my power, anything in my strength to bring you into healing. Man, I, I pray that we would have that kind of humility. That's the kind of humility that Jesus calls us to. It's the kind of humility that Micah 6, 8 talks about that says, he has shown you, oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And see this centurion, man, he walked humbly with the Lord and you could see it in his life. And it was just that compassion. It was blatant. Was apparent. And then his faith, his faith is awesome, right? Because here he is, he must have heard of the miracles that Jesus has performed in the past. The fact that Jesus had just previously healed all kinds of, of people from blindness and from possession and oppression, all these different things. He says, man, that's who we need. Jesus is the hope in this case. And think about what this is saying, because a centurion at this point for Rome, he had money, he had power, he had influence. He had slaves. He had all kinds of things at his disposal. But man, nothing, nothing would actually fix this situation except Jesus. And he knew that none of that other stuff was sufficient or beneficial enough to ultimately fix this scenario. And because of that, he sought out Jesus and thought, man, if Jesus is willing, he can restore this situation. I don't want to spoil the story, but I'll tell you, Jesus is willing to restore Jesus is willing to heal. Whatever you're battling tonight, oppression, depression, possession, whatever the thing may be, anxieties, physical pain, doubt, fear, those things, the Lord will be your hope. I can guarantee it. His word promises it. And again, I just want to touch on one more thing here is the fact that his humility is seen also, not just in his compassion for his servant. But in the fact that he sent some Jewish elders to go meet with Jesus, you see this, what this says is that, man, even though I have title, even though I have authority, even though I have status, the centurion might say, I'm not going to rely on that to go to Jesus and force him to do anything for me. What I am going to do is I'm going to send these Jewish elders over to him. And I believe there's some kind of humility in this because he's basically saying, look, at I understand that Jesus, you're the Jewish Messiah and I work for Rome. I have, I feel like I have no business being in your presence. But that said, I'm going to send these Jewish men over here. And I love it because the Jewish men get there. They don't act like they're being forced to do this. They love this centurion. They said, man, he's a good guy. He built us a synagogue in Capernaum. He actually loves the nation. This to me is a man that believed in the God of Israel. And though he worked for Rome, he loved the God of Israel and served that God. And it, it spoke because these other men were willing to go out and ask this favor, man. This guy was not proud. He was humble. And it reminds me of James 4, 6. It says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And see, look at what Jesus does in verse 6. It says, then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so Jesus begins to respond here. And it looks like we went off Instagram. That's a bummer, but that's okay. Let's continue on YouTube. So what happens here is that Jesus was willing to meet this man. He decided that he would go out and actually respond to this this centurion. This is a really, really wild thing to consider in the cultural context. Here's a man that's working for Rome again. And he has the power to be able to tell someone like Jesus, hey, you got to do what I say to do because I'm a Roman oppressor. You have to bow to me. But instead he says, no, no, no. I'm not even worthy that you would come to my house, Jesus. I'm not even sufficient in my works to go and meet with you. I'm going to send other people on my behalf. And man, this is just so crazy because he didn't feel like he was worthy to personally approach Jesus. And can I tell you something that there's so many people out there tonight that it's not humility. I think that keeps them from encountering Jesus. It's shame. So often we have people that are so shamed. They're so terrified of their past and the things that they've done. They say, Jesus, you're not going to want to even fellowship with me. You're not going to want me to come to you. But in this case, it makes me think of Hebrews 4.16, where we're encouraged by the author of Hebrews to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And see, though we were unworthy, Jesus's righteousness has been placed upon us to everyone who's believed upon him, as many as would believe upon him and received him as savior to them. He calls them children of God, according to John 1 12. And then we've received the adoption as sons, according to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. And see, we can now come in and say, Lord, I know I'm not worthy, but you've made me worthy. I can come with my request and you will hear that request and that you will answer it in your perfect timing, in your perfect way. It may not align with my ways, but it will absolutely align with your perfect plan. And see, in this case, I look at this and this this foreign Gentile, okay, he's not a Jew. He says, Jesus, I believe in you so much that you don't even have to come here because again, my unworthiness. But that said, my unworthiness doesn't change your power. Jesus, your power, man, you right now, can absolutely heal my servant without even being here. This is wild, right? I mean, look at verse eight again. He says, for I also am a man placed under authority. So what he's saying is I too know authority. And that word also means he believes that Jesus has authority. And not only does Jesus have authority, but he's saying you have more authority than I do. The authority that you're placed under is the authority of God, the father, You've already proven yourself more powerful than me, a centurion under Roman power. So why don't you just command it with a word? And I know that my servant will be healed. You don't have to come into my house. I think there's also that level of just reality in that culture that a rabbi entering a Gentile's house, many rabbis said, dude, we're not going in the Gentile's house. Maybe he was scared that Jesus wouldn't want to come into his house. But man, this faith that was so strong in this centurion, man, it just... It's wild because he must have known scripture and he must have believed that Jesus truly had the power of God in him. 
And I believe that he thought Jesus, man, he was, he believed in the deity of Jesus, the claims to be the son of God. Because Psalm 107, 20 talks about how the Lord can heal from afar. It says, God sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The idea is that God does not have to be physically in front of us that we can feel in touch and he can deliver from wherever he's at. He says a word and it happens. Jesus proves us over and over that he can do things with a word. He doesn't even need to physically be present. And man, it's so crazy because we have the whole counsel of scripture, you and I. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be honest with you. I don't have the kind of faith that this centurion had in that moment. Again, he didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He didn't have the fulfillment of scripture. And yet he's asking Jesus to do mighty, miraculous things. And it's so great because we're talking about, again, he lived with compassion. He lived like a, a, a kingdom citizen. I mean, he was living out the Sermon on the Plain, the section that happened right before this chapter. He's living with great faith and great humility. And we know Jesus loves these things. Jesus will work mightily when we walk in humble, obedient faith to his word. And look what happens in verse 9 and 10. We're going to see that Jesus responds to this man's great faith. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. And see, this is great because Jesus, it tells us that he marveled at the centurion's faith. The Greek word here is thalmazo. It's to wonder with amazement, astonishment. The idea of, look, Jesus knows all things. (laughs) Jesus wasn't surprised by this encounter. But to see it in front of him, I believe it was like, wow, I can't believe how awesome this is that someone has this kind of faith that they would send someone and say, just say the word, Jesus, and it'll be done. And see, this is so different because Jesus marveled one other time in the Gospels. In Mark 6, 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And it was speaking of the Jews at Nazareth. Again, the Jews we talked about in Luke chapter 4, the ones that said there's no way Jesus can be the Messiah. And see, in Matthew's account, it expounds further upon this this verse 9, where Jesus in in Luke 7, verse 9 says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In Matthew's account, Matthew 8, 11 through 12, he adds to it and says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west, that's speaking of Gentiles, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, speaking of the Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's the deal. The theme is just because you're Jewish doesn't give you entry into the kingdom of God. Just because you're the son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob does not give you access. And as a Gentile, you don't get access just because you're a Gentile or something. Far from it. We all have to come to Jesus Christ through faith. And see, there, were all, there, there are many today that are completed Jews. We want to talk about that for a minute right? I love the organization. um, I believe it's Jews for Jesus, right? They love Jesus. They're completed Jews. They believe upon him and they still uphold a lot of the traditions of, of their culture, but they believe upon Jesus. That's like the new Testament, uh, the disciples, right? Or Paul, they still were very Jewish in their culture, but their faith was in Jesus. And so we as Gentiles or Jews, we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And see, we know In this section, this is a theme. Jesus says, listen, 
You need to trust in me and in nothing else. And if you don't trust in me, I'm still going to do great works. But it's going to be those that put their faith in me that understand and are blessed by them. And see, for, the, for us Gentiles, I think about Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. It says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And see, this reminds me of Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So whoever you are, Jewish or Greek or whatever your background, whether you're white, black, Asian, anything you want to call it, whatever you are, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no economic class. There's no social class. There's no race, no ethnicity that breaks this up. It's for everyone. And we need to come to that today. I have no business, according to scripture originally, what business would I have as some white Gentile in Texas <laughs> participating in the Jewish faith? Well, here's the deal. Jesus is not about the Jewish faith. He's beyond it. He's above it. Read in Galatians how before the law was even put in place, like Abraham, right? I believe it's in Genesis 15, 6. His faith was accounted to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he was Jewish. It was because he had faith. We today need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And see, as, as this man tells Jesus this, Jesus sends his friends back to him. And the friends of the centurion, they return home and they find that the servant is well. And he's a long distance healing survivor, right? I love this. Like Jesus made a long distance healing in this case. He just said the word. He didn't go touch him. He didn't go to the house. I wonder what it would have been like if he would have gone, but I love the story so much better that he didn't have to go because the reality is I believe we're not going to encounter a physical Jesus walking into the room to heal us. When we pray for healing, we pray for whatever we need in the Lord for his strength, for his strength to overcome anxiety and fear or depression or oppression or any of these things. We're going to have to believe that he can do that by his word that yes we have him living in us through the power of his spirit that he is living in our heart but physically he won't be in the room walking right in front of us there's going to be an element of faith but when we believe that he will still work this way man we're going to be blessed by it and so this is what we see here is this this desperation but it's faith-filled desperation. It's like, Jesus, I have no other place to turn. I'm absolutely hopeless without you but Lord I pray that you would move and I love it because Jesus did it. It's just like what Jesus said in Mark 9, 23. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believe. We need to be like the disciples in Luke 17, 5. They said, Jesus, increase our faith. This is what we need. We need our faith to be stretched because Jesus is willing. Jesus is able. And we need to be humble and obedient and faith-filled. And so the desperation, we see it gets answered. But now there's a section about despair. Look at verse 11 through 13. It says, now it happened the day after that, that he went into a city called Nine, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. 
So here's Jesus coming in. It says the following day, right? They're entering the village of nine. They have a big old group, the whole crowd with them, right? The village of nine, nine means beauty in their language. It's about 25 miles outside of Capernaum where Jesus last was. So it's about a day's journey away. And this is important to know because as they enter in to approach the city of nine, the city of beauty, they're joy-filled, headed into this city. Here comes this whole party, this whole crowd. And what we find out is that it's, it's a funeral procession. And they're coming out of the village and the young man, likely died that morning because the Jews would bury their dead before sundown and it's a day's journey. So Jesus is walking into some really fresh pain. I mean, death is terrible. It's the last enemy, according to first Corinthians, right? But Jesus has conquered it. Praise the Lord for that, that we who believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in his word and him who sent him. John 5, 24 tells us we have eternal life, that we don't have to come into judgment and that we pass from death into life. So spiritually, we will never die. <laughs> But in this case, you have this whole crowd coming out and they're leaving the city of beauty to head towards the sorrows of a cemetery. And they're carrying out a man to bury him in the scene. And it's so crazy because this, this village of beauty has been engulfed with just the sorrows of death. Here's a widow and she's headed to bury her only son. I mean, could you imagine the contrast, man, between the two crowds? You have one crowd that's with Jesus and they're like, man, Jesus is healing people from long distance, man. He's just, God is so good. He's working all the time. And they run in this crowd that's just mourning the death of a young man, the only son of a widow. I mean, you had one crowd celebrating God's goodness and one just feeling the immediate pain and sting of death. And see, when Jesus saw this scene, he's moved with compassion, we're told. He had pity on this widow. Jesus sees this and man, he, it, she's a widow. I mean, she lost her husband. Now she's lost her only son. In that culture, it meant she had no hope. She had no provision. She had nothing to take care of her. She, who was going to handle this? The good news is Jesus was there. And see what he does though. He walks up and he says, hey, do not weep. I don't know about you, but if you walked into a funeral and walked up to the mother of the young man who died and said, hey, don't weep. That would be considered pretty insensitive. It would be considered pretty, pretty painful, right? But here's the deal. If I said that to someone, it would be insensitive. But when Jesus walks up and says it, notice how Luke phrased this in verse 13. He said, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And see, the word that Luke uses in the Greek is karios, right? And that actually means the deity Lord. It's not like Lord, master, Lord, servant. It's like Lord God. This means that, hey, God can tell you not to weep if he's about to do something really crazy awesome. Jesus walks up and says, do not weep. Everyone's probably thinking, who is this guy? Like, who does he think he is to tell this poor woman not to weep? But here's the deal. First Timothy, I'm sorry, second Timothy 1.10 tells us that Jesus came to abolish death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. And see, this scene is going to be a foreshadowing of his victory over death ultimately at the cross and at the resurrection. So he walks up and look at what happens. 14 through 17 says, then he came and he touched the open coffin and then those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So man, what a scene. You have this procession carrying this young man who has died that same day. They're carrying him. It says an open coffin. It's more likely a beer, right? Which is like a, a, it's, it's a thing they would carry someone on. It's almost more like a stretcher, if we will. And Jesus walks up. I can just imagine Jesus coming up and he just stops the procession by touching that thing. It runs right into him. And as he stops and touches it, imagine the shock of the people that are carrying it. They're like, who is this guy that's willing to confront death like this? Who is this that's willing to come here and touch this? And it's just a glimpse of Jesus's ultimate confrontation with death, his courage to take on death and to triumph over it. Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil and released those who, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And you see Jesus, his resurrection from the dead has proved that death is no longer a threat to those who believe in him. It tells us in Romans 10, 11, that whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And see, this is such a blessing to us as temporal human beings. Death has won every fight it's fought, right? One out of every one person has died. But someday, I believe one of two ways, either by rapture or by rupture, we will be face to face with the Lord. I believe in the days we're living in, the rapture is very close. I can tell you all day long why I believe that, but here's the deal. We need to be ready for Jesus to return at any time, whether it's because we go to meet him or because he catches us up in the air and we meet him in the air. But the reality is when we put our faith in him, we don't have to fear that. We don't have to worry about that, that Jesus has a number of days set and, and, and set for every person. And whatever that is, it's perfect. We don't want to outlive one day past what the Lord's perfect will is for us. And so at the end of the day, we want to be busy serving the kingdom. I'm a firm believer in the more you serve the Lord, the more blessed you're going to be, whether it's with duration or just with depth. But man, serve the Lord. Because we know that he's triumphed over death and we have, we could trust him that we are going to live eternally with him. And so in this moment, he walks up to this young dead man, dead to everyone else is going, man, we're carrying this guy off to bury him. Jesus stops it and says, arise and speak. Like he tells him to arise and the man begins to speak. This to me are the two signs that we have life from Jesus. Right, Because I don't know about you, but when I was in the world before Jesus, man, I was not living up to the calling of Scripture, up to the calling of the Spirit, up to the expectation of Jesus Christ. I was dead in sin and trespass. But when he called my name and I responded to that calling, I arose to that, to that calling and said, man, Jesus, you're Lord now. I'm going to rise. And also, I'm going to get, begin speaking about everything that you have done for me, Lord Jesus. I'm going to tell everyone that the hope has been found in you, that I no longer need to despair and live my life in despair and be desperate, trying to use other things. Lord Jesus, you are the hope. And see, in this case, Jesus, it reminds me of when Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And man, can I just tell you how just in time this was? The fact that Jesus showed up that at that moment on that day, 
I'm sure he sought the Father's will and the Lord led him, the Lord God Father led him here. Because man, if he shows up any later, they bury this guy. He's, it seems like death has won and, and claimed another life. But Jesus had other plans. He said, instead of going to the cemetery, you're going back to the place of beauty because I am going to intercede and I'm calling you to rise up and I'm calling you to start speaking and telling everyone, man, everyone around, they're seeing what's happening. And they just start shouting out like praise. And they're like, man, this guy is the real deal. This is a real prophet that's shown up in in the village of nine. They say, man, God is visiting us. This is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Jesus is proving that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah in this instance. And he's proved it to us. Therefore, we should be glorifying God with the way we talk about him. I believe it's uh, 1 Peter 2.9. It says that we are to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And see, as we do that, others will respond. They're going to respond. They're going to rise from the dead as well as we show them, man, we once were just like you. We once were dead in sin and trespass. But because of the joy set before Jesus, he died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. As we put our faith in his work, we are atoned for and we receive his righteousness. Amen. that leads to new life. Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be born again if we plan to have eternal life with Jesus. The only other option is it's eternal life, but it's not with Jesus. It's separation. It's in hell. Matthew 25, 41 and 25, 46 talk about it. It's heartbreaking to read that hell is a very real thing, but we don't have to be there. It wasn't created for us. It was created for the devil and for his angels. But as we trust in Jesus, we're delivered from it. Amen. And so the last thing that we see here, quick section, we're just going to look at the last few verses here. Look at verse 18 through 23. It's a section I believe is about doubt. We've seen desperation. We've seen despair. Now we see doubt. Look at verse 18. It says, then the disciples of John, speaking of John the Baptist, reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And see, this is radical to me. Because John the Baptist, Jesus will go on, we'll look at it next week. He'll say, John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever lived outside of Jesus himself. But here's John the Baptist, and he's sitting in prison. He's sitting under Roman oppression, the forerunner of the Messiah. And he's sitting there thinking, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Like, don't get me wrong. I have no doubt that, that, that John the Baptist believed that Jesus had come from God and he had no doubt that he was a forerunner, but he's just trying, I believe he's confused at this point about what am I supposed to be doing? Is this right that I am sitting in jail when we're supposed to be establishing the kingdom? You see, because we look at this, we think about the fact that he knew his story. Zechariah and Elizabeth surely told him his story about who he was to grow up to be because he became that. Then we saw him at the baptism of Jesus. He witnessed the descending of the Holy Spirit in bodily form like a dove. The voice that came from heaven in Luke 3.22 that said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was there for all that. It's no doubt that he believed in it. He was just confused right now. And he's starting to think, man, I've been told what the messianic kingdom looks like. It's about overthrowing Rome. It's about establishing something that's beneficial for the Jews. But see, 
They've been told a different gospel, so to speak. They've been taught something that said this is about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. When Jesus is saying, look, we're coming here to deal with sin. We're coming here to deal with separation from God the Father for eternity. We're going to deal with that. That's what we're coming for. But see, people were expecting the Messiah just to come in and just slay, just to kill everyone that stood in the way of of Israel and reestablish the kingdom, right? I mean, Isaiah 42, 7 said to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Like that's a messianic passage. And Jesus did these things in a spiritual sense. He will do this in a physical sense at the end of the tribulation when he delivers Israel, right? When he saves them. But the reality is here, John's probably sitting in jail thinking, dude, I qualify. I'm sitting in prison. Why am I still in prison? This is not what I thought this was supposed to be like. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus. And let me be clear. I don't think the doubt equates to unbelief. I think in times of chaos and in times of confusion, doubt is used by the Lord often to lead us back into his counsel, to his guidance. We start to say, Lord, what's going on here? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And when we seek him, we get back in line because here's the reality. Moses, Elijah, and Paul, those are three guys I always think of that had doubt. They had doubt in the midst of confusion. Moses started to think, man, these people don't listen to me, right? I believe it's Numbers eleven fifteen, where he's like, Lord, just kill me. He's like, I don't want to leave these people anymore. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Kill me, right? Elijah, Elijah is running from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, I believe it is. And he says, just kill me, Lord. I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's funny because the Lord basically tells him, hey, you need to go take a nap and go eat a little bit of food and chill out, all right? And then he gets back into like, all right, there's something for you to do still, right? And for Paul, Paul in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 through 10, he had to have a vision from the Lord to tell him to stay where he was and continue to speak the gospel because he was just getting stressed out, worn out. He was getting to the point where he's like, man, I'm going to quit. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to meet you here and remind you that I have a purpose for you. I'm not done with you yet. And see, in this case, what Jesus tells these men, look what happens here in 21. He shows them, man. Go tell this to John. He says, that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And see, this is so awesome because what Jesus is saying is like, oh, John wants to know if I'm the Messiah. I'm not going to give him some fluffy little answer about, hey, John, this is for your good that you're sitting in prison or something. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell him, hey, look at everything that I'm doing on the scene. I'm fulfilling Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Jesus would say, which said that the eyes of the blind would be open, the ears of the deaf would, would be unstopped, that the lame would leap like deer, and that the tongues of the deaf would sing, that rivers would burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, right? The idea that Jesus says, look at what I'm about to do, and he just starts healing all these people in front of John's disciples. He says, now, go tell John that I am fulfilling not just what I said in Luke 4, 18, but as I read Isaiah 61, right? Isaiah, I'm fulfilling all of these messianic passages right in your sight. Go tell John that he's worried about things that he, he had in his own mind that had been taught to him 
that this is what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. He says, go tell him that I am actively fulfilling the things I need to be fulfilling. But here's the deal. It's not about overthrowing Rome. It's about coming here and delivering people from the torments and, and their, their infirmities and their afflictions and their evil spirits and all their blindness. I'm coming to heal them of this. And so as he sends them off, he says, also, no, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I think that's huge. We have a little beatitude in there, right? Blessed is he who is not offended or caused to stumble because of me. And I'll tell you, there were so many people in their time, in Jesus's time, that believed the Messiah was going to do a certain thing. And when he didn't start doing it, they were stumbled by it and they rejected him. That's what happened in Luke 4 at Nazareth. That's why Jesus moved his ministry to Capernaum and said, man, you guys are going to be jealous of the things I do in Capernaum because they have faith. And the reality is they said, no, you're not our Messiah. Our Messiah is not going to come here and say not to like, worry about turning the other cheek and loving our enemy and pray for those who curse us, right? We want a Messiah that's going to come here like David, man. It's going to be a man of war and chop everyone down. But they didn't understand the near and the far fulfillments of all the messianic prophecy and that Jesus was fulfilling the immediate need. He came first as the lamb to take away the sins of the world, like John 1.29 says. But I guarantee you, he will return again as that lion of Judah. He will return and deliver and save just as it is written. Romans eleven twenty six 26 tells us that the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away unrighteousness and wickedness from Jacob. He will remove all that evil that's trying to attack Israel. He will deliver them. But see, at that time, they just said, man, we want that now. And Jesus says, well, that's not the timetable. I got other things to deal with. And the first thing is sin. And if you're stumbled by me, you will not be blessed. But if you accept me in faith, man, you're going to be greatly blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. But woe to those that already think they're filled. Woe to those that already think they have all the answers. Woe to those that are offended by Jesus. Man, today is the day. What are we doing with Jesus? If you're in desperate need, if you're in a season of despair, if you are doubting right now, I guarantee you Jesus will answer you. And not just with fluffiness. He will give you evidence and proof that he is who he says he is. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your love, Lord. And right now, Father, I just lift up anyone that may be online right now. Anyone that's watching. That maybe they're, on, they're in a season right now, Lord. They're just desperate for your touch, Lord. Maybe they're in a season where they are going through just what they would call a season of despair, Lord. Maybe it's been death. Maybe it's been illness. Maybe it's been oppression or depression or whatever it is, Lord. Father, I pray that you would deliver... Lord, that you would answer and prove that you are the hope of the hopeless, Lord. And Father, I pray for anyone right now who's online, Lord, if there's people out there, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. If you want to be born again, if you want to believe in Jesus Christ, if you want to be saved and be certain that you have eternal life, Romans 10 tells us we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And so if you want to begin that, relationship right now you can begin that with a simple prayer it doesn't end here but it, it can begin here and so 
you would repeat this prayer after me. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.